This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. And actually, Lutfi was appointed ambassador for the U.S. just three months before the cabinet reshuffle. But finally, Jokowi had to have a really good trade minister, so he selected Lutfi. Now, finally, we have a friendly face for Westerners and Japanese in the cabinet, other than Finance Minister Sri Mulyani. The subject today is Indonesia, ASEAN's largest economy, over a trillion dollar GDP but a challenging investment for foreign investors and foreign operators. They have a new jobs and investment law, some new cabinet picks, which are important for the foreign business community. And we're talking today with Ahmad Sukarsono, our lead analyst for Indonesia, about what it all means. Ahmad, great to have you with us today. Lots to talk about in Indonesia, as always, a new jobs creation bill, which actually has a lot to do with investment and business operations, hopefully making them easier in Indonesia, new cabinet members. So let's kick it off. Tell us, tell us what you're seeing. How much difference does the new jobs investment bill make? Well, it's great to be back, Dane, six months after the passage of the job creation law, that's what they call it, which supposedly should be President Joko Widodo's signature pro-investment bill. And I have to be honest, we have not seen significant improvement of the business climate. It is true that the Jokowi government has issued several implementing guidelines related to labor, licensing, and also investment. But I think most of them validate our previous call that this piece of legislation is positive, but not a game changer that would make Indonesia a far more attractive investment destination for foreign investors, particularly for those from the West and Japan. I mean, it is worth stressing that this law was passed in a rush last year in October the economic impact of COVID-19. Jokowi wants to save local businesses and many of which are linked to the ruling coalition and also strengthen the economic ties with China, Indonesia's top investor. That said, the implementing tool of the law that stands out the most for non-Chinese investors is the establishment of the sovereign wealth fund called Indonesia Investment Authority, or INA. Now, this fund is clearly a vehicle to balance the predominance of Chinese investment in Jokowi's legacy sector, the infrastructure drive. After years unable to attract non-Chinese investment into the president's top priority, especially projects outside the main island of Java, the government now is trying an alternative. So basically they want to create this bowl in which non-Chinese investors would be willing to put money into, then distribute the funds to those infrastructure projects, and then promise those patrons that they would profit in a few years. They don't need to know 
the disbursement details too much. That's why the target of the fund is clear from the background of their appointed managers. So the managers, all of them are U.S. educated with experience working in the West or with Western companies. And they're familiar with global standards of good government. So you could see from outset, they want to get money from the West and Japan and other countries that use Western standards without these patrons knowing too much about the details of the disbursement. So it's a good initiative, but the jury is still out on whether this marketing drive really works. So far, most of the potential investors are coming from Asia, the Middle East, Singapore, Japan, not the West. Great. Now you mentioned the positive list. I think we're calling it the positive list now. It used to be called the negative list for investment. Now it's called the positive list. Is it really so positive? Does it make a difference? Or is it just kind of repackaging of the same system that was there before, which was challenging to say the least? Yes, Dane. The the Jokowi government indeed likes to advertise this implementing regulation that, well, according to them, it drastically liberalizes the economy. So from their own words, it's no more, no more negative list. What we have now is a so-called positive list. But as a reminder, Indonesia periodically issues this breakdown of sectors that foreign investors are banned, limited, or allowed to enter. And previously, it's called the negative investment list, thus the negative list, right? So which the name suggests it underlines the restrictive nature of the Indonesian economy. So in early March, as an implementing tool of the jobs law, Jokowi issued a regulation that stresses that Indonesia is wide open for investors to enter all sectors. Now, here comes the caveat, except those that are restricted. Confusing, right? I mean, it's basically a sort of tautology. The government is saying that foreign ownership is allowed in allowed sectors. The aim is actually flipping the narrative from Indonesia that is res- uh, that was restrictive, which is negative, to a more positive spin that Indonesia is open until you find out there is a, neg- a regulation that then negates that along the way. So it's not really a new thing, but it's repackaged in a more positive light. So through this new regulation, Indonesia is offering a priority list that details the sectors where they want foreign money to pour in and sweetening it with the promise of incentives in taxes and licensing issues and all sorts of, of, of support. And there is also a different list that details the various restrictions for other sectors. Now, the biggest problem, unlike the old list, which is kind of clear, which is where you can go in, where you cannot go in, many sectors that are usually restricted and banned from get-go are not even mentioned. So it does not mean they are all open for 100% foreign ownership. It suggests investors should look for other more sectoral regulations that talk about this particular foreign ownership. So foreign investors like in the mining sector, which is not a priority 
um, according to the positive list, should still remember they eventually cannot own majority stake in an Indonesian mine, which is stated in a different regulation. Another thing that uh, we should bear in mind is these lists can change in a flash. President Jokowi had to annul a line that allows new investment in alcohol sector within days after Islamists, including his own vice president, who clearly was not consulted when it comes to investment issues, they publicly condemned the initiative to develop Indonesia's alcohol industry, despite very clear restrictions in that list that these projects would only exist in predominantly non-Muslim areas. But because of that strong reaction, uproar, Jokowi had to change it. So it's again, it's, it's a typical Jokowi kind of regulation, over-promising, under-delivery, especially when his popularity is at stake. Now, what are uh, in the priority list? One, definitely a lot about infrastructure, but also there are a lot of subsectors that are related to the electric vehicle industry, which has a hub in central Sulawesi and is mainly financed by Chinese investors. So you've touched on China a couple of times, Ahmad, in your, in your comments. We know that China is a big investor in Indonesia. There are strategic reasons for both parties uh, for that to be the case. You talked about the electrical vehicle section, electric vehicle batteries too, and some other sectors, infrastructure, of course. But sometimes there's a lot of talk about that, as with some neighboring countries, that it doesn't actually materialize. However, what's the story with China and Indonesia? Is their investment and their role really that big? Well, we have to understand that China is, and they are not actually admitting it out loud, that China is the biggest investor in Indonesia. On paper, the biggest investor in Indonesia is Singapore, but this is sort of misleading because BKPM, the Investment Coordinating Board, will designate, let's just say, origin of investment from the address. So many Western companies with a Singapore address because of their Asia regional office will be considered Singaporean. And that's why Singapore is Indonesia's largest investor for the last probably decade, because there's some kind of a skewed way in designating the origin investment. If you track down the real origin of the investment, China beats every country by far in the last five years, and it will only increase. It had a really large contribution to the investment through the FDI amount Indonesia got last year when everyone else was, you know, because of COVID, everyone else was doing this wait and see kind of approach while China keeps on pouring their money and their investment into Indonesia. Actually, it, there was a surge in 2020 of Chinese investment. For Jokowi and the government, China delivers. So you have to, you have to try to not see it from an ideological point of view. It's more pragmatic that the Indonesian government is close to China because China is the one that builds the infrastructure outside of, of Java, also meets the criteria that the political elite in Indonesia likes to have when working with 
foreign investors. So it's a cultural fit for Indonesian political elites. China delivers for Jokowi's infrastructure drive. And China also uh, likes to go to places where non-Chinese investors do not want to go to, which is outside of Java Island. So a little more, a little bigger risk appetite for them, uh, which, which pays dividends sometimes. We touched before just briefly upon some new cabinet members, including in places like uh, the Investment Authority in the last few months. Can you give us a rundown of which ones maybe are making a difference, who's up, who's down, particularly from a foreign investor's perspective or foreign operator's perspective? Is it a, were they good changes or kind of just some up, some down, par for the course? So the limited cabinet reshuffle just a few days before Christmas was undeniably a positive move. After months of pressure to replace his, let's just say, incompetent health minister, Tarawan Agus Putranto, who senselessly underestimated COVID-19, President Jokowi finally made personnel changes after two ministers, both from political parties in the coalition, were arrested for corruption in a span of weeks. This happened around October, November. One of them even came from Jokowi's own PDIP, and this social affairs minister was alleged of pilfering the COVID-19 aid for the poor. So with that kind of pressure, the reshuffled took place and it involved six positions. And I will only talk about the positive three. Now, the first one, we really welcome back the darling of the West, an English-speaking, tall and charming Muhammad Lutfi as trade minister, replacing the wallflower whose name will be forgotten, Agus Suparmanto. Now, Lutfi was the youngest trade minister whose tenure ended in 2014 when Jokowi rose to power. Now, Lutfi was most prominent and most known as the head of investment coordinating board from 2005 to 2009, when non-Chinese investment was surging in Indonesia. After Jokowi became president, because Lutfi came from a different, let's just say, political circle, he was sent to the to Japan to become the ambassador, again, the youngest ambassador of Indonesia for Japan. And actually, Lutfi was appointed ambassador for the U.S. just three months before the cabinet reshuffle. But finally, Jokowi had to have a really good trade minister, so he selected Lutfi. Now, finally, we have a friendly face for Westerners and Japanese in the cabinet, other than Finance Minister Sri Mulyani. Now, the second good move was the appointment of the 2019 vice presidential candidate Sandiaga Uno as tourism minister with the main task of saving the holiday industry in Bali, uh, which basically has been shattered because of COVID. He is tasked to revitalize Bali and create 10 more Balis across the country. Investors in this particular sector will find a very capable, English-proficient, cosmopolitan figure who can be one of the presidential candidates in 2024. Now, interestingly, Lutfi and Uno are connected to current state enterprises minister Eric Tohir, who is the strongest voice of reform now in Jokowi's second-term cabinet. These three 
were buddies from their young and formative days in colleges in the US, in the US. And they joined forces when they returned home to create uh, a company called Mahaka. Now, this is one of the biggest media conglomerates in Indonesia. Fast forward, Uno left Mahaka early when he started his own venture capitalist outfit Saratoga. Lutfi left Mahaka to become the youngest investment coordinator at the age of 35, while Tohir stayed and bought off stakes in many sports clubs, including the Philadelphia 76ers, DC United, Inter Milan, before Jokowi tapped him to run his 2019 re-election campaign. So this trio of best friends, Lutfi, Uno, Tohir, they can serve as the balance of the otherwise pro-China government. Fascinating. There's always a story behind the story in, in Indonesia, it seems. As we kind of wind this session up, tell us a little bit about Indonesia's progress on the vaccine front, because there's also a China connection there. Yeah, before I answer the question, I'll use this to, to touch the third positive that I forgot to mention. The third positive in the cabinet reshuffle, Health Minister Budi Gunadi Sadikin. Now, this is the first non-doctor health minister in 70 years in Indonesia, replacing the heavily maligned army doctor Trawan. Now, Sadikin cut his teeth in multinational banks before heading state-owned Bank Mandiri and mining SOE in Alum. Before the reshuffle, he was deputy SOE minister under Tohir. He's positive. Why? Because his organizational skills are much needed in managing Indonesia's disorganized COVID-19 management, especially the vaccination drive that requires high-level negotiations with pharma companies from China and the West. Now, Jokowi also appointed him a banker, not a doctor, so that COVID-19 health policies consider the economic impact of the pandemic. This suggests the pro-economy approach of the Jokowi government will not change. It will still have the mildest restrictions in the region, despite Indonesia being the epicenter of COVID-19 in Southeast Asia. Now, this, the vaccination drive itself has not been smooth. Only 3% of Indonesians have been vaccinated by the end of March. Jokowi's original deadline for herd immunity. So like 3% is definitely a far cry from the 70% needed, right? However, it's not entirely Sadiqin's fault. Right? The slow program is due to Indonesia's difficult geography, corrupt local government, and inadequate storage and freezing facilities. There will be a concerted effort to accelerate the process in the coming months, with many ministers saying that, okay, everything will be done by Christmas. To Sadiqin's own credit, he's the rational one. He's giving a more, let's just say, level-headed deadline of mid-2022 for, for program completion. And he has enabled a scheme in which companies can buy vaccines from the government and then vaccinate their workers for free in order to quicken the rebound of productivity levels that dipped due to the, you know, the sort of work from home, social distancing necessities. This means Indonesia is still COVID-19 danger zone, but the government is keener now in pushing people to live 
and work dangerously in the name of economic recovery, with an aim to return to 5% economic growth this year. Very ambitious. Thank you, Ahmad, as always, giving us the story behind the story. Things are never quite what they seem. Hope you come back and join us on a future episode. It was great to be here, Dave. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.